Welcome to All About the Sisters Wellness Podcast, where we help you reclaim your overall health and wellness. Get informed, take action, and be better at being well. I'm Melanie Painter, founder of All About the Sisters and your host. Today we get into domestic violence, or to put it more accurately, interpersonal violence. Stress, loss of income, and isolation can exacerbate the risk of violence that takes place in a home. That has certainly been the case during the last five months since the start of this pandemic. Many victims were now faced to be at home with their abusers full time with no escape. In April, the World Health Organization updated their site with a Q&A portion for victims of domestic violence. It started with simulated statements and questions like, home is not a safe place for me, what can I do? The recommendations provided included reaching out to family, friends and neighbors to seek support from a hotline or if safe, from an online service for survivors of violence. They also recommended that people find out if local services, for example, shelters and counseling centers were open and reach out to them for help. On June 1st, NPR posted an article titled, Domestic Abuse Can Escalate in a Pandemic and Continue Even If You Get Away. NPR identified one consequence of COVID-19 is a projected global increase in domestic violence, including intimate partner violence. Organizations had to get creative in the way they reached out to victims. The Salvation Army in Dallas Fort Worth, Texas, now delivers food, for example, as a way of keeping in touch with victims. Peace over violence, an anti-sexual and domestic abuse group in Los Angeles, joined with other groups to establish a hotline to help relocate victims. They were placing 40 people per week in safe housing. That's crazy. Abuse is ongoing. Whether we're in a pandemic or not, victims need assistance navigating away from their abusers or just knowing that there is help out there. I wanted to talk to LJ Samuel, who has been championing the safety of women victims and responded to the escalation in violence against women while she lived in Washington, D.C. At the time of this recording, we were also at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter protests. So in this chat, we also address police practices amid calls to defund the police. Our guest today is LJ Samuel, a criminologist with expertise in police community relations, police misconduct, risk management, community engagement, and interpersonal violence. She's the founder of Cupid Sting, an interpersonal violence reduction program. Welcome, Laurie. We are so happy, so happy to have you on the All About the Sisters Wellness Podcast. I think I remember the last time we chatted was about two years ago. And we were on Hard Talk with Mel, which I used to have on Facebook. And we spoke a lot about dating violence and interpersonal violence. Now we're in a pandemic, isolated from each other, and the situation is 10 times worse. Who knew? Who knew this is where we would end up? Okay, let's get into it. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. You know, even that question, um, the answer before, was flat. But um, the things that I have to say is that I am a Black 
female criminologist and I'm a justice fighter. I fight for justice. I've done that all my life from being in school um, to at work and then just now the work that I do with women. Um, but that is in and through um, my being. I'm always fighting for the underdog. So as I stated before, I'm a criminologist. My areas of expertise, if you will, are police misconduct, <laughs> police community um, relations, and of course, uh, domestic violence, interpersonal violence, violence against women. Okay. How did you fall into this course of study of criminology? Mm-hmm. That's something that you wanted to be when you were growing up? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I always thought that I was, I knew I was going to be involved in the criminal justice system. I thought I was going to be a, a criminal defense attorney. I always wanted to go to law school. And when I was in high school, I got an internship with my local police department. And that was it. I was hooked. I just found um, their inner workings fascinating. And I mean, I was 15. And from then I thought, but in order to change, because there were always poor relationships between the police and the black community. um, But I thought in order for things to change, I need to be on the inside, work my way up and be in a position of power in order to affect change. So I really tailored all of my schooling after high school for that role. So um, my undergrad is in criminology. I have a, a master's in social justice studies. Then I went, moved to, to Michigan and um, did a, another master's in criminal justice and then ended up in Washington, D.C. at the great Howard University where I did my Ph.D. in criminology and urban sociology. H-U, you know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you've worked at a major metro police department. Um, so let's just bring this home to what's happening now. This mm-hmm. uprising against police violence right now. How yes. relevant is this fight for our community? Well, it's extremely relevant. And again, kind of what we were saying in the beginning is that it's 2020 and I cannot believe it it hasn't changed. So the role that I was in was that I actually investigated misconduct. So whether that's, you know, something like insubordination, not following um, an order to theft, to, um, Um, I didn't investigate shootings directly. I had a unit under me that did that, but it could be very serious misconduct, um, domestic violence, for example. Um, So I did all that and I saw all of that from the insider perspective. And one of the things I can really tell you is that I was disappointed that, you know, you hire somebody, you train them, and you go through this rigorous process, I'm not saying it's the best process, it's a rigorous process of hiring and recruiting and training, and you're paying them a lot of money, and you entrust them, so the public trust is very big, and you also give them the power to potentially um, take a life away by giving them a weapon, and then they go and misuse that and do something like theft as I stated or 
taking somebody's life away um, when they weren't threatened or they say they were, but they weren't, you know? Um, but one thing I really did see based on the hiring practices is that you were seeing people being hired outside of the Washington DC area, Michigan, for example, where you're not familiar, one, with the area, and two, not that familiar with Black people. So you could see some of the white officers that were hired tended to have more uses of force because they were afraid with the people that, afraid of the people that they are policing. So instead of relying on the use of force continuum, things that are at the lower levels, they would go all the way and escalate to higher levels just based on this innate fear, um, some innate prejudices, um, and just a, a whole lack of understanding of another group of people. Okay, I have two questions for you, and I'm glad that you brought up that issue of having police that come from outside of the neighborhood. So I was reading um, in my research for this conversation that Camden, this is on the news today, mm -hmm. Camden, New Jersey, actually five years ago, fired the entire police department. They got rid of everybody and they brought in new mm -hmm. people. And one of the requirements that they have for any new police officer is that they have to go into the community and talk to the neighbors and let the, the, the citizens of that particular, of those neighborhoods know, this is who I am, this is where I'll be patrolling if something goes wrong. And what it has done, at least you know, some of the, the community members have said that it has changed the camaraderie with the police department. Crime has gone down because I remember hearing about Camden when I was at Howard myself, uh, because a couple of my friends were from Jersey and we used to drive up mm -hmm. there. And they always talked about, um, you know, the, it being very um, run down, drug, mm -hmm. drug heavy yep. community, you know, a lot of high crime. And so, mm -hmm. To really see what they have done in the last five years, it's not a perfect model, but at least right. one of the news outlets was reporting that perhaps this is a model that other places can follow. Mm -hmm. And it's a tall order because, you know, other constituents were also saying, look, you have done this, but here's what's, what's wrong with this. Because the police that we have now are police who don't come from the neighborhood. And so, you know, I don't know the inner workings of what Camden has done, but I feel mm -hmm. like it's something worth trying. Do you think that would work? Do you think that works? Um, so a couple, of, a couple of comments. So you asked me kind of what is the relevance mm -hmm. of what's going on now? Mm -hmm. And number one, what it's telling us is it's a clear indicator mm -hmm. that current policing practices and policies are no longer working. They haven't been working for a very long time. And there have been a lot of you know, commissions and studies to say the exact same thing over and over and over again. Right. I mean, there was a commission um, from 1967, I think it's Kerner Commission, um, you know, federal department, um, you know, all the, the brightest minds, you know, researchers and top law enforcement officials, and they said the same thing, you know, like the police 
and the black peony do not get along. Oh, well, we need to hire more black officers. So, you know, these things have been um, this rinse and repeat almost in terms of like the cycle. So what Camden did, um, I did read a little bit about it. I'm not fully versed in what they're doing. Um, it sounds pretty good on CNN, um, but again, you'd really have to speak to the community members. But yes, Camden has notoriously been um, a high crime area, um, lots of problems with the police, police in the community. But also you're looking at a population of, I believe it's under 75,000. Mm -hmm. So when you're um, now working with like DC, for example, um, is now over 700,000, or you're looking at places like New York City or Los Angeles where you're in the millions and you now you have police departments that are 50,000 plus. How do you get a handle of, on that not monster? And could you really, I mean, I'm hearing um, a lot of conversations about defunding the police or dismantling the police. Um, but could you really dismantle a police department that's 50,000 plus in a city like New York and what would the ramifications be? So for me, um, I always think about looking at root causes. Um, so a lot of my investigations, it wasn't just about the fact that person, this officer did X. What led up to that? You know, so is it that you're having substance abuse issues? Is it that you're going through a divorce? Is it that we simply hired the wrong person? And I think going back again, when we're looking at recruiting, um, you really need to hire the right person. And then when you talk about these officers going and knocking on doors and saying, hey, I'm Officer Samuel. I'm the person assigned to your beat. Um, I don't think that that's something you should have to tell police officers to do. That is your job. You're part of the community and you should feel like you're part of the community because you should be invested in the community that if there's disorder, if there's crime, or if somebody um, is having issues, even kids being bullied, that should impact you to want to make some meaningful and impactful change. So when you talk about community policing, the issue with community policing um, in its current form is that it's a program Okay, just like we're going to do a summer crime initiative in the months of June through August so we can, you know, quell crime. Community policing oftentimes is looked at the same thing. So you need that person that really and truly wants to do this job and really wants to help the community. And when they say the community, that means Black men, Black women. Mm -hmm. Chinese men, Chinese women, it's not just about um, maintaining the status quo by doing everything to help white people, you know? Um, and that needs to be very, very clear from the beginning. And also police are not very community-minded. You, you said it perfectly. They, they come in and they, here you have somebody who's had personal problems, maybe mental health issues, and you put a gun in their hand and give them the authority mm -hmm. to shoot. Well, they're going to do whatever they want because the, at the heart of the problem, I think it's a social and a mental issue more than it is anything else. 
You've got to fix, you, and I don't know how you fix social mental issues because even regular folk out on the street, we all have social mental issues. Oh, certainly. We all have our prejudices. We all seem to be racist at some point. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying this just to defend anyone. I'm saying it because we have prejudices. When I, I grew up in the Caribbean, we are both Caribbean, but I remember thinking certain things about Indians or Chinese and then your parents will tell you certain things and so you form your own values and and, and thoughts based on what the situations were that confronted you and we all do it we all do it but anyway I wanted to ask you something specific Um, so you were part of the community um, or investigating police that was mm-hmm. part of your job. Correct. If you were assigned to the Minneapolis Police Department when Detective Chauvin or Officer Chauvin killed George Floyd, what would mm-hmm. walk us through what would your job have been mm-hmm. in, in an investigation like that? Right. Well, something like that that's so um, high profile where um, there's been a death would activate all kinds of other units. So you would be working with the internal general counsel, um, internal affairs, which is where I was. And then of course, um, you would have attorneys from the city or again, in, in, in DC, um, it would be, you know, the US attorneys, it would just, again, depend, but there, one of the things that you would initially do is just run his name on whatever internal systems the police department have Mm -hmm. and what you would get back would probably be a pretty long sheet of previous incidents which we now know and has been reported in the news so other uses of force um, be it shootings or beatings or maybe somebody complaining about handcuffs being on too tight and you would just literally go down the list see what's going on, what happened with previous investigations. And I always took it back to personnel jacket. So um, I was not responsible for hiring people, but I wanted to know what did the hiring person have kind of in their mind. And you go back and invariably, and I can tell you this, and probably I'm never, uh, you know, I'm an academic, so I'm not going to say 100%, but um, the high 90s in 90 percent plus cases when you go back to the personnel jacket there was an issue with this person during hiring so there's information in their background that set off red flags that indicated that probably this person should not have been hired or that the background should have been a little more rigorous so I will give you an example Um, I would go back in personnel jackets and find um, academic transcripts, for example. And the person would have all Fs. So they essentially failed out of whatever academic program they're in. Mm -hmm. Why would you want that caliber of person and give them such high responsibility? And again, as you mentioned, and give them the gun, give them the, the, the responsibility where they can take somebody's life or liberty away. Um, you would see things that maybe as a juvenile, they had been arrested. Okay, that happens before they were 18, say for example, 
But just like you said, it's, it's building an argument for the type of character, you know? Um, and then it just escalates when, when they get older, or when you give them this responsibility. So you would do all of that background information and then based on the, the policies um, for the department, the use of force policies and what have you, you would then kind of figure out what you could um, write up in terms of the disciplinary case in order to get this person um, terminated, or I will say disciplined, and part of the discipline could be termination. But of course, all of that would be in tandem with other people and other units, especially um, the, the internal uh, general counsel, because you wanna make sure that you're doing everything correctly so that let's say you do end up terminating somebody that you um, don't you know, violate any timelines or miss some internal policy where the person can then get their job back. I hope that answers the question. Wow. Well, let's switch gears into what, because that was your, that was what you were doing previously. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. So you founded uh, Cupid Sting in 2015. Tell us what the organization is about and why you started it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I started Cupid Sting, um, like you said, 2015, because I was seeing an escalation in the brutality of violence against women. Um, I would see crime reports every morning and they would come across my desk. I'd flip through them invariably, you know, um, most of the victims, a lot of the victims were, were women and they were getting um, involved in being assaulted in, on the one hand, so like two categories, in, in incidents where I felt that it was preventable. So for example, um, you'd have young ladies come home at work, it's late, it's dark, and then they decide to go for a run in Rock Creek Park. I, I know you're familiar with that. So a, a heavily wooded area, very secluded. They would have their headphones in and they get attacked because they didn't hear anything, see anything, and they did not alert anybody that they were going to be um, out late at night or when it's dark so that when somebody's looking for them, they would know where to find them. So that was one hand. So I said, I wanted to um, create a program that's proactive in nature to really prepare women in the event that they're ever attacked. And then on the second hand, you have um, women that are in domestic violence situations that are getting hurt over and over and over and over again. So, you know, I always say my mission is to prepare women and teach them life-saving skills that they can employ inside and outside the home. Right. So for those that are being victimized, you know, what could we do? And the best thing for me was, was self-defense. Um, so again, for the woman on the street, um, you're going to be a little smarter, um, about kind of where you're going and the times and things like that, situational awareness. And then if you're ever attacked, you know how to, um, defend yourself. And then the same thing for those women that are being abused at the hands of an intimate partner, um, on a regular basis, what are some of the things you can do to protect yourself so that you're, 
not having to go to the hospital, for example, or that you actually live and live so that you can get out of the situation and take care of your family. So um, I started working with the Caribbean Students Association at um, Howard University and doing some programming um, with the young ladies on campus. But I also did some programming with the young men. And oftentimes, and you know, you're, you're working, you're fighting, and you're fighting for this really hard issue and you're trying to prepare women. And I always think, well, what about the men? We would not be in this situation. These women would not be in this situation if it weren't for the men that are abusing them. So I really started, you know, kind of retooling the program and working with young men in terms of how do you approach women? How do you speak to women? How do you um, intervene on behalf of women when your friends are saying and doing certain things? So I had um, some young, I had some professionals, my friends and colleagues, you know, doctors, lawyers, right. pastors, come in and speak to some of these young men about, you know, dating behaviors and um, words that are coming out of their mouths and really um, trying to impress upon the fact that one, it's not cute and two, it's a crime. And if you get caught and arrested, that means you're going back. You know what I mean? So your scholarship is done. Right. You may go to jail and now you have a criminal record and you have to go back home, you know? Yeah. So I, I think, and I don't know if it, if you want to call that a scare tactic, it's reality. And so I am starting to do a little bit more of that. But again, the only way we are going to success, successfully fight violence against women is really to start educating our boys and young men early so they're not engaging in those types of behaviors. So we're in the middle of this pandemic and according to the data collected by the UN, 243 million girls between the ages of 15 and 49 worldwide were subjected to sexual or physical violence by an intimate partner in the last year. Um, this is devastating. Mm -hmm. you know, numbers. Um, we are now isolated from each other and some of these victims are with their perpetrators living right. all day, um, every day. What is, what's your fear for victims? And are you hearing anything out there about what is being done for them and how can they be helped, you know? Yeah, so I have been pouring through the data since this started. And when the first stay at home order was issued, I just thought, oh no. Because as you said, um, women victims are now forced to be at home with their abusers, which means these incidents are going to go up. Right. So my fear, and just, just like the number that you just quoted, is that the numbers are going to go up and you're going to have um, um, more brutal cases and more deaths because of the additional stress. So um, a lot of the men that are the primary um, breadwinners are either being furloughed or losing their jobs completely. Mm -hmm. So that money is no longer coming in and then they lash out on their partner. 
and you're seeing that over and over and over again. In fact, and again, all, all over the world, all over the world, I think people think that, um, you know, it's a regional problem, so maybe it's an American problem, or it's a black problem, um, it's a poor problem, but this is everybody. This is everybody, and I cannot impress upon that enough, is that when you're looking at these numbers, ladies, look in the mirror, you know? It's, it's, it's all of us. Um, and I, I saw some numbers from Australia that in a 14-day period, six women were murdered at the hands of an intimate partner and they related it back directly to the pandemic and the fact that you're forced to be at home. So you're isolated. Um, what happens is that the behaviors that the abuser engages in are amplified. So in terms of the isolation, in terms of you know looking at your phone, looking at your computer, and then of course, some people live in condos and apartments that are only so big, so where do you go to cool off, you know? So I wrote a piece maybe about a month ago just, you know, to give some tips on what to do. And of course, one of the main things is to recognize the red flags, right? So um, you're home, there's, there's a lot of stress and tension in the home. Um, one thing that never closed, you know, everything closed except liquor stores. So, you know, now you have more drinking. Right. So to <laughs> kind of be, mindful of that so now your partner's drunk and normally when he's drunk he's aggressive and abusive so what do you do so maybe those are the times where you say okay i'm going to the grocery store um or one tip i had that if you have a vehicle you know get away go and sit in your vehicle but one of the things that i think is even more important when we talk about community is our support systems um, mm -hmm. I think everyone pretty much knows who might be in a, a rough situation or an abusive situation. And we need to be mindful of that by checking on our loved ones, you know, our family, our friends, our coworkers, just to make sure, um, one, they know that you're thinking about them and two, that you're offering help if they, if they need it. But one thing that I've been loving, um, I've seen in Toronto, I can, I can speak to um, directly, is that the hotels are closed, the motels are closed, you know, no one's on vacation or going on vacation, but um, some of the chains are working directly with women's shelters because they are running out of space mm -hmm. and the women are able to stay in a safe place, safe that they're away from their abusers, but safe um, still that they're in a single room, for example. Right. So, um, we don't have further spread of the virus. So, I mean, those are some of the things that I'm seeing, but it's such a huge problem and, and really hard to kind of get a handle on because the cases are so high. Well, it makes a case right now for, you know, it makes a case right now for social services because, um, you know, because there's a, there's, a, there's a bigger need now. And, you know, that's, that's the, the, on the good end of this. Um, not for not for the greatest reasons, but I think social services deserved a push, you yes. know, more um, visibility, so to speak. So, how are you mobilizing with Cupid's Sting during the pandemic? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's been very difficult because a lot of what I did, of course, working with clients has been face-to-face, but it's forced me, it's forced me to be um, a little more innovative and think outside of the box. So um, I have really ramped up my social media presence and been putting out a lot of video content just with tips and tools, um, directing people to my blog, um, things of that nature. And then just being, you know, offering to be a resource, you know, that you can call me whenever you need it, reach out. And if I don't have the answer, I will find the answer. So I have some clients where, um, you know, we're doing our work, so to speak on the phone. But the Mm -hmm. other thing that I've been doing is developing some online educational content in the in the form of courses. So I have a fairly new domestic violence course um, called Every House is Not a Home. Mm. And it's a 30 minute online course. And um, what's nice about it, one, is that it's 30 minutes. Um, (laughs) We're all on all these webinars (laughs) and calls now. So, you know, you have the attention span, but it gives an overview of domestic violence. Um, talks about some of the numbers and who's impacted and kind of looks at the overall psyche. Cause I think a lot of times people um, approach the issue from a place of judgment. Well, you know, if he hit me, I'd leave. Um, you know, you have kids, you should leave. Right. But we don't know anybody's situation. You don't know um, their financial situation. And bottom line is, um, a lot of the victims, they still love their partners. You know, they're, the yeah. love is like kind of that foundation. That's why they married them. That's why they had children with them. Um, and they see some redeemable qualities in this person that's brutalizing them. But again, that's not our place, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really more about being a place of support. So I wanted people to understand that, mm-hmm. that while maybe this person is being beaten, and maybe even being beaten in front of her children, their family, um, that's not your place to judge. You just have to kind of understand the calculation that's kind of going through her mind because she may want to leave, but she has nowhere to go. She may want to leave, but she can't take her children. And most women are not going to leave their children. So, um, and then there are some, you know, tips as supporters of things that we can do to help and again so that's one of the things that Cupid Sting is doing and that course I partnered with another organization called Institute for Childhood Preparedness which is nice so that we can kind of feed off of each other have those conversations in terms of how do we help each other's membership because not just about my people or their people or your people we are now seeing with everything that's going on, the realization that it's not just the black community and the white community and the domestic violence community. We all really, as cliche as it may sound, have to really start coming together and sharing resources and um, having that understanding in order to, 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 to live in a better place. You know, that's, that's ultimately what we want. And where can we find the course? So you can find the course um, so if you go to Cupid Sting, 
um, all my social media platforms, you can find the links to the courses there, or you could go to the Institute for Childhood Preparedness.org and find it there as well. Okay. But if you just do, do a Google on it, quick Google search, you should find it. Okay, so we will be sharing this out with folks just for them to awesome. know. And if you, so if awesome. you know anybody out there who's a victim, please share this with them in the meantime, mm -hmm. so at least they have something to look forward to if they can't get away from their perpetrators at the moment. And what are some online resources, just general things that people can do, you know, if they're at home and looking for some sort of relief or to get away? Mm -hmm. Is there like an mm -hmm. underground railroad for domestic violence victims? <laughs> um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that exactly. Of course, please um, go to keepitsting.org or keep it sting on um, Instagram specifically and you'll find some resources there. I'm just gonna refer to my notes so that I have these correctly so that when you put them out for your folks. The one thing that I um, really like about some of these domestic violence organizations is they've been creating apps, free apps. Mm. And um, that is really necessary um, because, you know, again, in terms of the financial situation, we just don't know and people may, may not be able to afford it. Where, um, a couple of the apps will do an overall assessment. It's, there's one app called Are You Safe? The letter R, the letter U, safe, S-A-F-E. Mm -hmm. And you do um, an assessment on your, your relationship and your situation. And based on how you answered or if you reach out for help, there are some resources that are listed. Okay. Um, one thing that I think is vitally, vitally important is to document and sometimes people might think that it's something small. So it could be something like, you know, we got in an argument today over a text message, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes you just push that in the back of your head. But, you know, document that wherever you think that is safe. Again, everything that you do, you should be safe. But there is an app um, called DocuSafe, D-O-C-U-S-A-F-E, a free app that the National Network to End Domestic Violence developed. And you can just go into your, your Play Store or um, I forget what the Apple one is called because I don't do Apple anymore, but, um, you know, Apple Store and download the app. Mm -hmm. And um, there are different screens where you can um, upload pictures. So right. perhaps maybe you have a black eye, you can upload the pictures and it's time and date stamped um, because this information might be useful for your supporters, say, for example, like maybe your mom might be concerned about you or it's really going to be useful in a court of law. In a court, I was going okay. to say that if, if charges mm -hmm. are brought up, yes, it right. be best defense. Absolutely. Yes. And oftentimes we have an issue of believability still. Um, when it comes to the criminal justice system. So if it's not um, blaming the victim or questioning the victim in terms of how she looks or dresses or how long she stayed, it's then that, well, you don't have any concrete evidence. And this is a fantastic app where you can track and collect evidence so that it can be used later if that's the route that you go. Um, the National Network Against Domestic Violence, do DC 
Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, the American Bar Association has a section on um, domestic violence, sexual violence, and mental health, where there are some resources um, available there, really good resources. Of course, they have the money um, to provide those. But if you just, again, do a Google search um, in terms of resources, there's a lot of help out there. Right now, however, um, you know, everybody's working overtime, trying right. to keep up with the demand, which has increased. And then, of course, you have people like me working from home that you're not able to physically work in the office just because of the pandemic. But most of the 24-hour hotlines, um, like the National Network and the National, um, oh, I'm sorry, Coalition Against Domestic Violence that they run are still up and running. So mm -hmm. if women need help, they can call those 24-hour um, um, hotlines. The other nice thing about some of the websites is that, let's say you're sneaking to go on to find a number or a location or some information, there's a safe exit button that um, if your abuser is coming, you can click that button and it'll just take you to like a regular website you know, regular, whatever that means. I don't know, Disney. <laughs> but it will take you or navigate you away from the domestic violence website so that they don't know what you're looking at and what content you're looking at, which is really, really helpful. That is really helpful. So you also teach self-defense. Is there some way that women can tap into these classes right now? Are you doing virtual self-defense classes? Yeah, so I'm definitely working on that. I've been um, doing some Zoom workout classes, so I'm trying to figure out ways to incorporate that um, where you're kind of simulating things because you can't like touch somebody or grab somebody. Yeah. And um, like I said, I've been putting out some content on um, Instagram, just some things to kind of help with your breathing and some basic things that you can do to protect yourself but it's definitely in the works um once i figure out all the technology um it'll definitely be out there but i'm working on um a class on situational awareness and then really trying to figure out how to do the self-defense classes virtually well laurie this has been great so much more information from two years ago um keep it sting is still going strong i'm very happy yeah. about that congrats Thank with you. that Thank and you. um I'm also very happy that we're, we're at a time where people's eyes will be a little more focused on the um, important stuff like this stuff. So mm -hmm. thank you so Absolutely. much for what you do for us women in the black community, what you're continuing to do. As you said, you're a justice Absolutely. fighter and you fight for the underdog and mm -hmm. definitely victims, domestic violence victims are underdogs on Absolutely. some level. So. We thank you so much for joining us on the podcast thank today. You. And as you have stuff, please roll it out and let us know uh, so we can share the resources on our website and uh, so people will know. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mel. I'm Melanie Painter, and I thank you for listening. For more about All About the Sisters, please go to www.allaboutthesisters.com or check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts. Want to know more about our guests? check the description of this episode down below.